as we come together this morning, um, we're just going to take a moment to slow down um, from the craziness of the week and just acknowledge the presence of God. So I'll just take a moment with me. Now pray this prayer with me. Lord of creation, create in us a new rhythm of life composed of hours that sustain rather than stress, of days that deliver rather than destroy, of time that tickles rather than tackles. Lord of liberation, by the rhythm of your truth, set us free from the bondage and baggage that breaks us, from the pharaohs and fellows who fail us, from the plans and pursuits that prey on us. Lord of the resurrection, may be we raised into the rhythm of your new life, dead to deceitful calendars, dead to fleeting friend requests, dead to the empty peace of our accomplishments. To our pactful planners, we bid peace. To our over-caffeinated consciousness, we say cease. To our suffocating selves, Lord, grant release. Drowning in a sea of deadlines and death chimes, we rest in you, our lifeline. By your ever-restful grace, allow us to enter your Sabbath rest as your Sabbath rest enters into us. In the name of our creator, our liberator, our resurrection and life, we pray, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. This is the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, For about a year now, It's been my favorite prayer. And I thought as this morning we're going to talk about walking the world as the people of God, I couldn't think of a better starting place or a better backdrop for what we're going to be talking about. Because, I mean, you guys can recognize that like we live in a world that is utterly divided right now. I mean, you've got Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton... And Ted Cruz can't even be broken down into Republicans versus Democrats anymore. Immigration, refugees, Muslims, and ISIS, guns, the prison system, the death penalty, racism, Black Lives Matter, Harriet Tubman and the $20 bill, gays and lesbians, the Bible, bathrooms, and cakes, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, atheists, agnostics, and God's not dead. Just war, necessary, evil, nonviolence. The list like goes on and on and on. And there are always going to be divisions. There are always going to be things we disagree about. 
But if you need evidence that these things are like core to our identity, that we hold them tightly to us, how uncomfortable did that list being said out loud make you feel? Because it made me kind of uncomfortable to say it. Like, am I going to offend somebody? Am I going to, even just by saying it here, like where at a church where our strongest identity, our strongest bond is supposed to be like our shared bond in Christ. Um, like, I'm afraid, like, there's a part of me that's afraid to bring those things up, just mention them, because I don't want to end up fighting somebody, I don't want to end up offending somebody, I don't want to end up alienating myself or someone else. And I think that's because we all end up holding these things, maybe even as more identity markers in who we are than, like, our bond in Christ. So, in, in college... I, uh, we had our dorms, uh, that I lived in. It was a guy's dorm and we had a community bathroom, which was actually a really good time. We'd hang out there and, you know, everybody's like getting ready for bed and stuff. You're brushing your teeth. That guy's flossing. That's where we get to know each other. It was a good time. We also had like a communal shower thing where it was like stalls and we, you know, we'd go there and we'd sing songs and talk about life and it was great. Um, but I had a buddy who lived in that dorm. And we were theology and Bible majors and stuff. And he was uh, on his way to do a normal thing and take a shower when there were these guys in our school who were also theology majors. And they were kind of like the self-proclaimed heretic hunters of our school. So they wait until my buddy gets in the shower. And then they come in and corner him. So now there's nowhere he can go. And they start barraging him with questions and telling him how much of how much of a heretic he is and all of these things. It was angry and odd, and um, and yeah, they cornered him in the shower. Um, and I, the dude wasn't even that. I mean, the guy would have fit in in Lakeland. They're just so nitpicky about everything has to be just like us. Because everything these days is us versus them. We're right and they're wrong and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And like I said earlier, there have always been divisions. I get that. But I think something that's made it worse in the last 10 years or so is social media. Um, I can speak to that because... So whenever I was in school, I was like, you know, learning all this stuff about the Bible and theology and philosophy. And I was like, man, this is so exciting. And there's so many people that like talking about this stuff. I'll bet what would be a really good idea is to create an environment on Facebook where I could have like discussions with people and we could all like, you know, build each other up and challenge each other. And it'll be great. And I was wrong. Um, And... At first, it went kind of well. Like, some people started talking, and we disagreed, but we could be like, yeah, like, we're cool. Like, we're disagreeing, but that's okay. But then this one guy came, and he was a friend, like, a friend of mine, his dad. And we had pretty radically different views on, I think, everything, like, how, which hand you should eat, which, everything. Um, so he, he started getting on, and at first it was like, yeah, like, you're like a son to me. I want to look out for you, like, that kind of stuff. And then it increasingly, eventually, like, he started posting on everything that I posted. It didn't matter what it was, and he would disagree with me. And they were getting angrier and angrier. And 
I started getting, like, eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, this guy doesn't even have any, like, theological training or anything. I could run circles around this. So I did. Um, and it didn't help, though. It didn't, it didn't help at all. Um, he ended up, there was a period of time there where, in my eyes, he lost his humanity and became that troll on Facebook. He became a system of views and political and theological ideas, and he became my enemy because he was no longer a person. So my buddy who got cornered in the shower, like most people do, um, he, he did the only sensible thing that someone who's cornered in the shower by heretic hunters does, and he lashed out on Facebook against them. And then he had a special platform because we were all in a sermon like a preaching class together. So he had the ability to not only lash out on Facebook, but write a sermon for class that sounded really great if you heard it, but on this level that only a few of us knew. The whole thing was attacking these guys, um, which is the best kind of sermon. And uh, yeah, that was interesting. So, um, but, but maybe there is a different way. Because like I keep saying, there's always been differences. That's always been a thing. And even in like the scriptures and the history of the church, we see that. Like take, for example, the Romans and the Jews. So the Jews pretty much unanimously hated the Romans. And it makes sense. I think like about Jesus, you and I would have too. Like they oppressed them. They beat them. They, you know, had taken over their whole land. And they killed them for lots of reasons that I think you and I would be like, I don't I don't think that was a very good reason to kill a person. That's a little stupid. Um, and so the Jews hated him. Except there's this one group of... Man, I'm totally lost in my place here. There's this one group of Jews that, that chose a different way, and that was to take the oppression and turn it into a financial gain. And they were the tax collectors. And they signed up with the Romans to uh, collect taxes. And then the Romans said, okay, whatever you like, can put on top of their taxes, like, you get to skim that off the top. So they're like, taking advantage of their own people who were being oppressed. So the Jews hated them even more than the Romans. And then Jesus came in. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. You guys know that story about Zacchaeus? He, Jesus was a Jew, and by all accounts, he should have hated Zacchaeus. He had every right to. But rather than seeing him as this slimy dude who's taking advantage of everyone, Jesus looked past that and saw his humanity. Jesus came to him, and he said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat with you. And in that time, not really told exactly what happened, but we know that Jesus engaged Zacchaeus' humanity. Somewhere down there, what God had created and was good, and Jesus pulled that out in him. And in their time together, Jesus changed him. So we talked about St. Francis earlier. I'm going to take a little glimpse into his life. Uh, So whenever St. Francis was born... His, uh, 
he, like the Crusades had been going on for about 100 years. And of the Crusades, there's this St. Bernard of Clairvoix. Um, he, uh, he was a uh, church leader at the time, and he said of the Crusades that people were not killing people, they were killing evil. Which you may have heard that, you know, that same logic on several different sides of conflicts used even today. The Turks, the Muslims, they were the enemies in every sense of the word. They had attacked the Byzantine Empire, which was Christian. They had taken over the Holy Land and they were converting people to their religion, often at the sword. So the you know, Holy Roman Empire, they, they decided to respond by doing the exact same thing. But rather than fight or support the Crusades, as most of the clergy were in the church, Francis decided to take a long and dangerous and difficult journey down to Egypt, and where he met with the, uh, with the oh, what's the word? The leader of Egypt, the sultan, there we go. He met with the sultan of Egypt to preach the gospel because he said, well, maybe if the sultan of Egypt was a Christian, then it would put an end to the fighting. Even appearing before the sultan was like a life-threatening thing as a Christian. Like he could have just been put to death on the spot just for being a Christian in front of the sultan. And neither man was converted and neither man was put to death, but they did engage in a dialogue that was like mutually building up. Uh, The sultan expressed interest in Christianity. And St. Francis, he actually, while he went there to preach Jesus, he was open-minded enough that he learned things from the sultan. You guys have, I don't know how many of you have been on retreat with Lakeland, but whenever we go on retreat, you know how we like will ring a bell three times a day and come in for prayer. A lot of historians say that actually where we get that from is whenever St. Francis went and met with the sultan, that he saw the way that the Muslims, like, that they came, they had these calls to prayer several times a day. And he goes, wow, we should do that. So he brought that home with him. Rather than seeing the entire Islamic world as nothing but evil, which had to be eradicated, St. Francis saw something that those around him couldn't, and that was the humanity of the people. So actually, my friend who, you know, we're uh, shower and then the sermon, and so now we're to, uh, he, something about that sermon that maybe wasn't out of the greatest place, it actually caused those guys to be like, oh, like maybe you're not the worst after all. Like maybe you are trying to follow Jesus too. And we just understand how that works differently. So it's been said of St. Francis that he walked the world as the pardon of God. That's a phrase that I've been spending a lot of time with this year. I think it's a beautiful phrase. It's a beautiful idea. But what does that mean? In Jesus, we see that God takes our sin and our suffering and all the crap we can throw at him and at each other on himself, and he lets us murder him, and he hangs there on the cross, 
and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you want to know who God is, there is no pure moment of revelation about God than this moment. If you, everything that we think we know and we believe about God has to be filtered through the image of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what does it mean to walk the world as the pardon of God? It's a costly thing. Because first, it means inhaling sin and hatred and anger and exhaling forgiveness. We imitate God when we act as the purifiers of the world. When people throw their hatred on us, they throw their differences and their negativity and their sin, and we accept it. And we breathe out love, and we breathe out forgiveness, and we breathe out compassion. We're putting together a conference uh, that's going to be hosted at Lakeland uh, in August, and um, I'm super excited about it. And there's several authors and speakers that we're bringing in. And one of them, his name is Michael Harden. And uh, he has a bit of his story that is whenever he was early in ministry, he was uh, pastoring this small church and he was in his 20s. And he was struggling with alcoholism at the time. And in the two or three years that he was at this small church, he ended up having an affair with a woman at the church. And when it came out, he descended further and further down into his alcoholism and became a total mess and lived in the attic of some friend's house, just kind of descending into nothingness. Until his wife came to him a couple months later. And she said, what you did hurt me and hurt all of these people, but I love you and I forgive you and I believe in you as a person. And in her inhaling the sin of her husband and exhaling forgiveness and love and compassion. She was Jesus to her husband. Second, it means that we see each other. When we look at each other, we see each other's humanity rather than each other's flaws and sin. It means seeing each other's belovedness by God rather than seeing each other's screw-ups. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who some of you guys may have heard uh, quoted around here, uh, he says that Christian humanism is not based on the presumption that our humanity is self-justifying. Rather, Christians are humanists because God showed up in Mary's belly. So when we get bent out of shape because we're so different from someone or because they off-put us so much, we don't, we don't look for those differences. We look for our commonalities. We look by, for their belovedness by God. There was this guy that I knew, and really I knew him through social media. And honestly, I'd seen a couple things he posted, and I just wrote him off as a redneck. I was like, guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's ridiculous. I'd seen him passing a couple times at school, but didn't really give him the time of day. And thankfully... I had friends who did and introduced me to the guy because he's now one of my best friends. Um, When I actually took the time to know him as a person and not just this small little snippet of his political ideologies, I was like, wow, you were one of the coolest people I've ever met. We became friends faster than anyone I've ever known. 
And my friend who, you know, got cornered in the shower. That's his name now. Um, he, he's friends with those guys now because they reached out and were like, hey, we, we realize that you are a person and you love Jesus in a different way than we do, but we can be okay. Third, it means that we seek to be reconciled to those whom we disagree with and actually understand them rather than just thinking we know everything about them and writing them off. So there was a time when I was so passionately involved in wanting to end the refugee crisis and things like that, that I, if you would have asked me and you would have said we shouldn't bring refugees over, I would have said, how dare you? Have you lost all compassion? What is wrong with you? There's no humanity there. So I took to social media and blasted a bunch of rants and memes and, you know, it's always good to argue with memes. And People, like, I had dialogued a little bit with people who didn't want to, like, who were against bringing refugees over, but I was like, you know, I'm not really going to hear it. Until one day I sat down with a friend, and this friend was against bringing refugees over, and I figured out he wasn't actually evil. Uh, He actually didn't want to bring refugees over for the same reason that I wanted to bring refugees over, and that was because he valued human life and was afraid for people, and it was actually out of love, love that just looked different than mine. So we didn't have to agree, but he was no longer my enemy. So you're probably wondering why there's a wolf up there, because it's had nothing to do with anything I've said so far. Um, that is because there's this story about St. Francis, and I'm just going to preface this story with, if you think, if you hear this and you're like, whoa, that sounds like a real thing, then that's awesome because there's way more, you know, like out there stories in the Bible and we believe those are true. But also if you're like, yeah, that's probably not a thing that happened, I also don't blame you because it's a little bit of a myth, a cool sounding story. But I think if anyone, if I've never been in a community that knows the power of myth and that myth can be just as true as a real story, it's probably Lakeland. So there was this village where St. Francis was staying. And the people had a problem because there was a wolf that had gotten so ferocious that it was no longer just eating the little forest woodland creatures. It was also attacking their livestock. So they're like, we got to do something about this wolf. And they didn't. So then it started attacking and killing people. And... They were like, okay, now we actually really have to do something about this wolf. So it was the medieval time, so I like to think they got an angry mob together with torches and pitchforks, and they're like, we're going to go get the wolf. But uh, St. Francis was like, hey, guys, give me a minute, and he intervened. So he, he went out into the woods, and he found the wolf, and he looked it in the eye, and he said, you have no right to be taking human life and there's a bunch of people over there, and they all want to kill you, and they're justified in doing so. But I want to give you the opportunity to do something different and to, like, stop killing people um, and then save your life. So as wolves do, it nodded knowingly, and uh, 
came back with St. Francis and lived in the village. Um, you know. Uh, and it lived there with the people, and like it, they fed it instead of it feeding on them. And, uh, you know, they were able to make peace. And I know that's a little bit of an out there story, but I think we do all have wolves in our lives. Like we have people that everybody is just like, that person is so like out there and ridiculous. Like nobody is interested in making peace with them. Nobody is interested in forgiving them. And I do want to be clear. Some of these issues are really important. Some of them are things that I care about deeply. But the reality is that there's a big difference between being people who are Christ in the world and just being people who have opinions. So each of us has a realm where we can walk as the pardon of God. Each of us has a realm where we can be God's air purifiers. At home or school or work, like following Jesus isn't an easy thing to do, but it's definitely not inaccessible. All It's as simple as being where you are and inhaling the hatred and the sin and the arrogance and the differences and the pride and exhaling love and forgiveness and empathy and compassion. So I want to read this letter uh, to kind of close up. It's uh, written by Father Christian de Serge, and he was a French uh, bishop, I believe, in the Orthodox Church who lived about 50 years ago. And he was a missionary in Algeria. And this is the letter that he wrote uh, to his family to be delivered to them and his church when he was martyred. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that, one, that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me, for how could I have been found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent but forgotten through indifference and anonymity. My life has no more value than any other, nor any less value. In any case, it is not the innocence of childhood. I have lived long enough to know that I share in the evil which seems, alas, to prevail in the world, even in that which would strike me blindly. I should like, when the time comes, to have a clear space with which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and all my fellow human beings, and at the same time to be able to forgive all, with all my heart the one who would strike me down. Obviously, my death will justify the opinion of all those who dismissed me as naive or idealistic. Let him tell us what he thinks now. But such people should know that my death will satisfy my most burning curiosity. At last, I will be able, if God pleases, to see the children of Islam as he sees them, illuminated in the glory of Christ, sharing in the gift of God's passion and of the Spirit, whose secret joy will always be to bring forth our common humanity amidst our differences. I give thanks to God for this life, completely mine, yet completely theirs, to God, 
who wanted it for joy against and in spite of all odds. And this thank you, which says everything about my life, I include you, my friends past and present, and those friends who will be here at the side of my mother and father, of my sister and brothers. Thank you a thousandfold. And to you, too, my friend of the last moment, who will not know what you are doing. Yes, you too. I wish this thank you, this adieu, whose image is in you also, that we may meet in heaven like happy thieves, if it pleases God, our common Father. Amen. One last time, let's pray the prayer of St. Francis together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Thank you and go in peace.